Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Andrew Mellon and you're listening to the Celtic Soul Podcast and you're all very welcome to episode number 57. On the show today we have the second part of our interview with Peter Hooten, singer-songwriter and the frontman of Liverpool band The Farm. Peter was also a pioneer of the fanzines back in the early 80s when he produced The End. He's also a committee member of Liverpool fan pressure group Spirit of Shanky. And just to keep him busy over the years, he's written a couple of books and put out a documentary on the casual scene. In the first part, I chatted to Peter about the farm's early gigs in Dublin and some band names that cropped up on Peter's musical journey included The Clash, The House Martins, UB40 and Madness. And he also told us about some not-so-sober nights in Soho with Suggs. His first trip to Celtic Park was also discussed, and a chance meeting with the late great Jock Steen and Glasgow's finest police officers. If Steen is Celtic's hero, then in Liverpool it's Bill Shankly. Liverpool, a working-class city like Glasgow, where the Irish also fled on Gorta Moor for a new life. That new life would see the Irish settle into walking on the docks when they arrived as refugees. As well as music and football, I delved into the fanzine archives with Peter and we also got the story behind the song The Four Leaf Clover and a Celtic Soul podcast would not be complete without some tales of football away days. If you missed part one, give it a listen. Don't forget to tell your mates about the podcast. Spread the word, spread the love. Love football, hate racism. Folks, I just want to give a special shout out to St. Margaret's Celtic Supporters Club and to all the Celtic Supporters club who continue to raise money for charities since the lockdown uh, hard times for everybody and at the weekend we raised three and a half thousand on a whatsapp group a little raffle hilly and all organized and it's going to a young teenager slav who's fighting cancer at the moment there's also been some brilliant work with the Kana foundation and, uh, and other charities over the past 12 months so well done to everybody you know the working class values are still alive it's a shame that we do have to raise much needed funds for all these charities because, you know, big government and big business seem to be letting us down. Thanks to everyone who has sponsored the podcast so far. We've no sponsor for this episode, and like the fans in, we are supported by Celtic-minded business, Celtic supporters clubs, and individual Celtic fans. We've had an offer from a large company to sponsor our platforms, and although it's tempting, I think we're going to continue to walk the way we are and keep independent with the backing of, as I said, Celtic-minded businesses, Celtic supporters club, and individual Celtic fans, as we do want to keep our independence. And I have to apologise to our listeners in Cuba, Iran, Syria and North Korea, where the episode was banned last week. So apologies for that. I'm not sure if they're going to ban this episode, but I'm a bit surprised. But there you go. Obviously, they don't like the farm in these countries. 
We must be doing something right if we're pissing someone off. Anyway, if your business or Celtic Supporters Club like the podcast and would like to sponsor an episode, please email us at infoceliticfanzine.com. You can also contact us through the website or message us on social media. If you're a listener, a reader, or both, you can support our independent Celtic media platform by visiting the website celticfanzine.com, where you can become a member, subscribe, buy, or donate for the price of a pint. Your support will help us to continue to produce quality independent fan journalism, fanzines, podcasts, and some video content. And once we can get back, we will get back to doing some fan events. Keep the comments and suggestions coming in for guests you would like us to get on the show and so we can dig into the Celtic soul. And here's a few comments from the last podcast with Peter. Absolutely tremendous episode, some brilliant stories and UB40 mentioned a few times. Keep up the brilliant work bud, along with the Tommy and Hector podcast. These are helping me with the lockdown. I will keep listening when all this is over. That comes in from Mark McCabe in Glasgow. Interesting insight into the Liverpool Irish and the music scene and the songs Liverpool and Celtic fans share. Really looking forward to part two. Tony Ratton in Sunderland. Tony, your thousands of sailing t-shirts are now in the post. Thank you very much for the support. Hats off, Milish. Totally enjoyed this interview. Could have listened to him all day. Well done. You are bringing out the best in all your interviewees. Very proud of you. And like I'm saying from a good friend, Orla Hillman in the league. Thank you very much, Orla. Your words mean a lot. Just wanted to say how much I enjoyed the podcast. Absolutely brilliant, mate. Gus McDonald, People Before Profit. Just catching up with the last two episodes. Really enjoyed them and look forward to the next episode. Hail, hail. Hopefully you're back for Celtic AM next season. And that comes in from Mark Hennigan from the O'Connell's Celtic Supporters Club in Glasgow. Mark, I can't wait to get back to doing the live shows in Glasgow. It's hard to believe it's been over a year since we were in Glasgow for the St Mirren match and the pre-live Celtic AM show in Malone's. And it's coming up to a year since we actually hosted any type of show. And those are in Bangkok and in Pattaya with Alan Thompson and Paul Bourne. So, yeah, missing a big time. Deadly interview. Probably my favourite so far. Kieran McAleer, Everton fan. And, of course, Kieran reminded us that the farm uh, altogether now was the song for 1995 for Everton in the cup final. I think I got the year right, Kieran. First class interview with Peter altogether now is one of those songs that stops me in my tracks when it comes on. Makes me strangely emotional and now hearing Peter and his values will ensure I listen to part two and indeed more of the farm. Excellent stuff. Hail, hail, Matthew Doherty. Really enjoyed the latest podcast. Looking forward to the second part. I was in Anfield for the Ian Rush testimonial when we got hammered 6-0 but still sang for 30 minutes before and after as well as for the full 90 minutes. The farm played on the pitch at halftime. And that comes in from Neil Patterson in Glasgow. Millish, love the Hooten interview. Keep up the good work. Sean Keelty, Navin. Really good pod, guys. Knowledge of football and popular culture is vast. I forgot about the origins of our song lyrics, Four Leaf Clover. I hope you've asked in part two of Everton using All Together Now for the FA Cup song in 95, I think. Pod has been passed on to many mates. Keep on what you're doing and keep the faith. And that comes in from Kevin Claypool in Glasgow. Cheers, Kevin. Hope to see you in the Alta for a point soon. Keep the comments coming in, folks. Thanks for listening. And of course, thanks for reading the fanzine and the website. Now that the dust has settled and the benches in Georgia Square have been sent off to be repaired and the Rangers fans have retreated back into their homes, happy in the knowledge that they have enjoyed a COVID super spreader event, one that Donald Trump himself would be proud of. Big shout out to the boys with the big green cherry picker who gave the front of Ibrox a facelift and a maths lesson to all at Newco. 
Celtic's same club tweet may have been welcome earlier in the week, but we should not let this deflect from the problems we have at the club. Last Sunday we witnessed a Celtic team not prepared to put a tackle in or go the extra mile to secure three points and force the Rangers to come to Celtic Park to fight for the title we held so proudly for nine consecutive seasons. All football players have a certain shelf life and sadly many of the current squad would seem to have come to an end of the road at Celtic. Some of the players did not want to be at the club this season and may have used Celtic as a stepping stone for so-called bigger moves, which I like to call more money moves. And these moves have only been played out in the minds of some of these players. Some of our players' egos are bigger than their ambitions. Now the time has come to say farewell, for if they could not be bothered to put up a fight in this historical league season, then I don't expect them to redeem themselves in the Scottish Cup, although nothing would make me happier than to see some silverware staying at Celtic Park this season. I haven't seen anything in John Kennedy's first two games in charge that would suggest anything has changed with this bunch of players. And I hope Dermot Desmond has a rescue plan up his sleeve because at the moment, the club is a total shambles from top to bottom and no Rangers COVID party should deflect from that. Today, my guest on the show is again Peter Hooten as we get the second part of my conversation with him. Peter, singer, songwriter, a frontman of Liverpool band The Farm, a pioneer in the fanzine world and also a documentary maker and he's also written a couple of books. If you enjoyed the first part, you are going to love the second part. So folks, don't forget to get your feedback in on this one as well. Glasgow, back in the 90s, while we're in birds and, and we'll stay in Glasgow, you know, the, a group came out first called Save Ourselves and then yeah. we had Shells for Change with Matt McGlone and Brendan Sweeney and people like that and they helped ice the old board which heralded the arrival of Fergus McCann but thankfully for the past 20 years we have we have the Celtic Trust and they can engage with the board represent the small shareholders and the fans you're, you're involved in the Spirit of Shankly group how yeah. important do you think it is to have a Celtic Trust or your... Yeah, I think it's I think it's vital because otherwise, you know, the businessmen would just run off with it, wouldn't they? They just do whatever they want to do. And I think the very fact that we've we've challenged the club on so many occasions and they've uh, they've basically done a U-turn that you know they know we're a pressure group. They know we could get you know in the in in the height of the SOS. You know, we were getting five thousand on the marches, but you know when we were having the original demonstrations against the original owners Hicks and Gillette. We only ever really had 10% of the crowd. We'd get 5,000 on a march. Everyone else would like, when we had like a sit-in after the game, there'd be 5,000 again, but the other 40-odd, 45,000 get off. You can't find anyone now who didn't support it, you know, but at the time they couldn't be asked, you know, but it, it was the vanguard, really. Uh, it's the vanguard of the fan base, you know, who, who, who knew what was going on, were educated about it and took it up. And we made sure, because of the way the internet was 10 years ago, we made sure that Hicks and Gillette couldn't get any more loans, even when we were on Wall Street going into banks. You know, someone, a Liverpool fan in New York had spot them, get a photograph of them, and then the bank would be bombarded with, don't you dare lend them any money. <laughs> and that's how it worked, you see. We did, because um, ticket prices were going unbelievable. Arsenal away, you know, eight years ago was 60 quid. It'd be £100 by now if we hadn't done anything. We went over to Manchester and proposed a, a march on the Premier League headquarters, you know, and um, it worked. We only had 500 people on it. There was about, you know, 70 or 80 Liverpoolians, uh, half a dozen Evertonians, half a dozen United fans, quite a few from Arsenal, Tottenham and West Ham. 
but they wouldn't march with each other. One had to be at the front of the march, the other had to be at the back. We're not marching with, you know, it was all that type of segregation still. But um, uh, we stopped the traffic outside the Premier League headquarters and caused mayhem. And then we did the walkout on 77 against Sunderland uh, when a third of the ground walked out uh, for the ticket prices uh, were going up. Uh, and then all of a sudden he started listening. And it was only by direct action. But, you know, some of the arguments we used to have over we should be doing and we shouldn't be doing, you know. I think Newcastle, uh, Newcastle have that all the time they can't agree on a strategy I don't think he can boycott a match that's people's life on the match but we were deciding to march before matches get all the press attention and then maybe have stay behinds after the match as a as a protest so it just depends on the leadership you know but a lot of people involved in the, in what we were doing were involved in the Labour Party in the 80s you see so they had organisational skills you know yeah I think with trust I think a lot of the younger fans kind of want you know they want action overnight you know they want the board they want to sack the board overnight I don't think yeah. that it's a long game and like the biggest fear the biggest fear for I've been a member for 20 years of the Celtic Trust, but it's only this year because it was kind of like a, it was kind of a sleep because the club was doing well and they represented the fans that were, were arrested in, in Amsterdam you know, when the, when the plainclothes police bet the shit at them. You know, they represented them, they got the best of lawyers for them, they got them off by one yeah. who was done for throwing a can at a policeman, but he thought it was an Ajax hooligan. And yeah. then, as well as that, we had the fans against criminalisation where you could basically be took over game, banned from the ground for maybe two years till your case came up. And then yeah. every single case that came up was thrown out. But you'd lost, you'd lost a year or two of your of your football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we yeah. won. They won that, and that was it. Was hard work for people to put the time into that. And it's not, it's not glamorous, you know. You, you're not going to get people coming up going, "Well done for you know." Some of the stick we used to get, uh, you know, it was unbelievable on on message boards. You know, on the Liverpool Echo, you know, we were a front for uh, Dublin. Uh, Drugs gangs. We were, you know, uh, we were front for this, that, and the other. We were involved in, in Irish politics. You know, it was just mad. You know, all these mad bullshit. Yeah, because people couldn't understand it. Uh, in Thatcher's post Thatcher's Britain, the people could do that without having a personal gain. Yeah, you know, and and that's what it's getting that people. It, it's because the lack of trade unionism now. That yeah. what's in it for them? Why are they doing it? Some of them used to be football hooligans. They must be up to something. You know, it's all that type of innuendo. Our, our biggest fear is uh, we're 18% um, of our club is owned by Vulture Fund. Dermot Desmond owns 40-something percent. Then we know Dermot's a fan. You know, he's a miss, he's, and he's, a billion, he's also a billionaire. So, yeah. you know, especially during COVID, it's, it's helpful to have a billionaire in your corner. So, but if he was to amalgamate with this vulture fund, you know, there could be a hostile takeover of the club. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And all the small shareholders are gone. And, the reason why I'm getting a bit fearful is, and I, I kind of feel two ways about it. I have no doubt that there's a European Super League coming down the road. And it's it's sooner than we think because yeah. Barcelona's in a, a bad way financially. Real Madrid's in a bad way financially. All these mm. big clubs in a bad way. They need that revenue coming in. And they're talking about, I think it's a league of 18 teams. The, yeah. The Premier League, you know, the wealth that's in the Premier League is, is, is unbelievable. So that's our fear. But then... We'd rather be pissing inside the tent than outside the tent. We'd love a chance yeah, to yeah. play to play all these teams and make all this money. But does it then, you know, does it go back into the team or do these people yeah. just, you know, hard the money? So it's called kind of, a double-edged sword. And it's great to have you on that someone who you'd nothing to gain personally from, you know, from all you had was your love of the club. Yeah, I think that's what it was. I think... Um... A lot of the lads and girls involved, you know, it was just basically they'd been brought, and that's why we call it Spirits of Shankly. They'd been brought up 
uh, and the, you know the the sort of like uh, philosophy and from life had come from the likes of Shankly, you know. So and people couldn't understand that. Oh, they must be doing it for something. When's the t-shirts on sale? You know that's everything, you know. But we've never been like that at all. And we basically we got a big membership, and then when the COVID came, you know, we started this thing called Help Is Here, you know. And we gave out thousands of food parcels. And that was inspired by, uh, I think, the Green Brigade were the first to do it, weren't they, in Glasgow? Yeah. Uh, a Possibly, few years yeah. ago, we uh, the food banks and that, and that was inspired by that. So we were always looking to what was going on around the world, you know, in terms of different things. And we also had sent a delegation up to look at safe standing. Uh, and obviously, which, it's a, which is brilliant. It's a very, very uh, emotive issue, obviously, in Liverpool because of Hillsborough. But... We came out in favour of safe standing, which, um, you know, maybe some of the Hillsborough families, organisations w- wouldn't support. But, you know, we they weren't, a lot of these people uh, who'd lost people weren't necessarily football fans. They didn't know the culture of football. So when we would explain to them that, you know, uh, that was safer than standing in the cop now, because we all stand in the cop. We stood in the cop since Torres came, 2007, 2008, I think it was. Uh, my knees are done in through falling over chairs and that, you know. And we were saying, look, it's a lot safer. If, and we went to look at the Celtic model and uh, Celtic were brilliant with us, you know, and we went into one of the games and it was fantastic, you know, and the feedback we got. It's still not a big issue in, in Liverpool at the moment because it hasn't, you know, because COVID was the bigger issue, you know, but we're certainly in support of it. And it's it's one of those things where as long as you've got a group of organised people who seem to know what they're doing and you've got good communication skills, you know, that's the important thing. It's dealing with people. Some of the people who do our press releases, they used to write for like the Champions Magazine, you know, the Champions League magazine, but they're just volunteers. So they're not charging us for it, but they'll do our press releases. And I think Liverpool Football Club was surprised by how organised we were. Who are these guys? It's like the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You know, they're uh, getting chased by the uh, detective Go, you know, who are these guys? Where have they come from? But our ma- one of our main organisers, Paul Rice, was uh, used to be the chair of the Broad Green Labour Party in the height of militant. And I got him to do the very first mass meeting that we had. And I thought, if he can organise Broad Green Labour Party at the height of Terry Fields and the militant tendency and keep all the war and factions fairly united, be able to do this, and he did. Unfortunately, passed away a few years ago with leukemia. But he was, it, it was getting good people on board who weren't in it for themselves, you know. And I think over the years, the SOS have been proven that that is not the case. And we've got benefactors now coming to us saying, We want to give you money to help out in the community, which is unbelievable. No, fair play, it, 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 it's brilliant. And I will go back into the football, but. Paul, I have you here. I, I want to talk a bit about music as well. And it's not... It's not this is a two-parter, is it? Could be, could be. Um, <laughs> because I'm, I'm not going to let you go, am I? I have can you. I get a drink? Yeah, of course you can. Okay. The farm, when you, were you aware when you when you were recording Spartacus and that kind of era that as we're going across the musical divide, like I've heard the farm at scooter rallies, festivals, raves, house parties, even yeah. in trendy nightclubs, down the pub, indie bars. I remember I was living in a flat when Spartacus came out, my first flat, and we used to go back after the pub, and it was it was one of the albums that was never off the turntable because you could play it for whoever was at the party. It yeah. wasn't as if we were going to, if we were playing reggae, it was only suiting some people. But this was a kind of a an album that 
starting to, you know, maybe music was changed as well. People were getting a bit more diverse. They were coming out of yeah. the little, the little tribes, and I, I, I still play. I can, I can still play the farm in a set now, and yeah. it always goes down well. But were you yeah. aware then? No, oh, like the dance well, crowd like that. Uh, I think we wanted what we called omni appeal. You know, we wanted that um, mass appeal. You know, so so you know youngsters could like it, but also middle-aged people, pensioners could like it. You know, we wanted that. Um, you know, that I'm talking about all together now, now, you know, as a song, but I think Spartacus as, as an album was, we didn't have that in mind. We just, we just wanted the right songs, which were accessible, you know, they weren't too self-indulgent. Uh, and I think we'd been writing Spartacus for, because we, it took us a few years to get an album out. We'd had time to hope, you know, to, fine-tune it really you know uh, and we had some older songs that we tried to adapt for Spartacus but we were all into uh, by then we were all into hip-hop loops and things like that you know and we did a tour with Big Auto Dynamite in uh, in America and it was absolutely fantastic we were on tour with Mick Jones from The Clash you know it was like all our dreams come true and they had another band on called Downtown Science who were a New York hip-hop band and one of the lads in it was like called Sam Seavers EO, EO was did the uh, stuff for Third Base. They were a hip hop band from New York as well. And uh, Jonas Sanchez, he come up to us and said, uh, "I recognise some of them drum loops." I went, "Oh, do you?" Yeah, he said, I said, "We said, who are you?" He said, "I'm Sam Severs. I used to be in Third Base." And we went, "Oh no, how much do we owe you? <laughs> <laughs> how much do we owe you?" And he went, "No, man, I'm flattered. You know, I'm flattered. I got them off other people. You know, like he he'd mix it around with them and all that." So yeah, it was like it was a feeling of when we first started with Stepping Stone. That was that was aimed at a particular dance crowd in London, who you know to so the so things like the Face magazines like that would take an interest, you know. And then because the Happy Mondays and the Stone Rose had done well and were selling lots of records, people were saying, "Where did this image come from? Where did it come from?" And all roads led back to the farm, of course, you know, our image, the way we looked. But we always cited big audio as our influences, not particularly. I mean, you look, look at Primal Scream and, that, and they got Andy Weatherall to remix them. Primal Scream were like almost a goth band, weren't they, you know, originally. And they were great, but that's their style of music. It was rock and roll, you know. Andy Weatherall completely changed that. And what happened with us, with Terry Farley getting involved, he was on Boy's Own along with Andy Weatherall. He introduced us to a new, a whole new, he opened a door for us, basically. He opened that door. But you needed Suggs as the producer because he had the pop sensibility. Uh, and like he was the one saying in the chorus of All Together Now, drop out all the music, which has that effect, you know, makes it into a massive chorus, you know, when the second part of the chorus comes in. Terry Farley was the one saying, Groovy Train, that guitar bit in the middle eight, put that at the beginning. You know, the diddly diddly. that was a middle eight. Yeah. In appeal session, but he was saying put that at the front and make that the feature. So it was, uh, we had ideas, but it, you needed it was a jigsaw, like Shankly always used to talk about the jigsaw. It's all about the jigsaw. Every piece has got to fit to make it complete. You know, it was a jigsaw for us, and we had great people working for us. You know, we had, and we were having a brilliant time. You know, and we we were hoping that lots of different people would like it. You know. It crossed over like the jam crossed over, I think. People were saying that James Brown, who did the NME, said when we were on the front cover uh, of the NME, 
it sold more than any other group. Now, you wouldn't expect that, would you? Because the enemy is a pretty snobbish readership at the time, you know. But we were selling on council estates all around the country, you know. And yeah. I still get people getting in touch with us now going, you know, yeah, you were the first, you know, I started reading the enemy because of the farm. And I, I think we had that appeal to street culture, really, you know. Well, I was lucky enough to, you just played one night before a game. And uh, no, I hadn't got over, especially for the gig. I'd gone yeah. for the game. But the night before, and it was with me, Mrs. Sandra. And um, done the album from start to finish. And I actually, oh, found, yeah. I found the um, the set list because oh, you, yeah. you'd signed the set list. The band had signed the set list for my wife after the gig. And uh, I think he's it, it, finished on some Clash stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, on the bottom, and I was, I was trying to jog my memory and I was going, Just, do, I, do I remember that? And I kind of said, maybe I do, maybe I don't. But the good thing about that was, was that night was that um, we ended up back downstairs in King Tut's. Yeah. And... I got talking to a couple of the boys out of the band, telling them about the SFX gig, and then I started talking to fanzines, and you you heard about the fanzine, you popped up, and ended, oh, up, right. ended up having a few beers. Um, so it was a, it's a kind of an album that hasn't dated. Yeah, I you don't know? think it has now, yeah. Like my son's a DJ, he's, he's starting out DJing, and obviously it's all hip-hop and house and that he's doing... But he, he's been, you know, I'm always saying to him, pointing out, you know, where stuff changed in the 70s and where stuff mm-hmm. changed. And I, I pointed to the farm. I said, this was a kind of emergence of the acid house scene with, yeah, yeah. you know, guitar bands, basically. Yeah. Like. It was called indie dance, wasn't it, at the time? But I think what happened was with grunge coming along, the record industry regarded that as uh, past its sell-by date. Uh, and I think they thought grunge has come along and then, that set the scene for like a British oasis and Blair and that type of thing. But I think the electronic side of it in 89, 1991 was much more interesting. It was much more interesting. It had a lot more going for it, I think. And I think um, Daniel Miller from Mute Records says that as well. He, he said it was retrograde what happened in the mid-90s. People started, you know, looking backwards, you know, rather than forwards, you know. And I think it's it was it was it was sad the way it went, really, but I think um, the way people would experiment with different sounds was like revolutionary, you know, and all sorts of genres were mixing together, hip-hop, dance, indie, you know, it was fantastic. You know? And do you think that the farm would have kind of influenced bands like, you mentioned the, the Oasis, the Blow, that kind of thing that came in the mid-90s. Do you reckon the farm would have influenced like the likes of Space and Cast? And possibly, yeah, possibly. And I think, I think um, not the Lars as such, they had their own sound anyway, but I think, Oasis were um, certainly the look that we had was completely taken from the farm, you know. There's no doubt about that, you know, because Alan McGee's told me that, you know, so I've got no doubt about that whatsoever. Because if you remember 1990, Noel Gallagher and people had bowlheads, like the Inspiro carpets, you know, and then they seen uh, the likes of us and, and the enemy in the face, you know, with with our, uh, Roman-style haircuts, you know, <laughs> Masala haircuts, we called them. And then all of a sudden, that's what they look like, you know. So I don't think it's any uh, now, coincidence, does, you know. There's a rivalry in the football. What Was there a rivalry in the music between Liverpool and, and Manchester? Yeah, there was a bit of a rivalry there between us and the Mondays, but it was a friendly rivalry because we always got on with them. But we did um, we did a gig in, uh, in Taylor's, you know, a uh, big outdoor festival, and it was chaos, absolute chaos, you know, and... Uh, uh, we we went to we went to the it was in the rugby club wasn't it what was it called uh, the failure was it yeah 
And uh, trip yeah. to the tip or something was called. It was ninety one, I think it was about and contraception had just been legalized in Ireland. So all our memories were going down these roads with people waving Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true, you know. But anyway, we got to the hotel in the middle of nowhere, like a, a mansion in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and then we spent uh, the Friday night there. Uh, we had a great time, you know, and then we went for the sound check Saturday, I think it was. Uh, and then we did the sound check mid midday. And Public Enemy were on that night with us, I think. And various groups. And the Mondays, I think the Mondays were on. Oh, no, that was Redden, Public Enemy. Uh, in Taylor's, it was the Mondays were headline, and we were on just before them. So we went to this uh, bar, and it was the rugby club bar. Um, and the Guinness was just, oh, it was just unbelievable. It was milk. It was the greatest, you know, it was fantastic. So after the sound check, I had about two, three pints, but I could see what was coming, and I said to everyone, we'll have to go back to the hotel. And they're, no, no, we'll stay here, we'll stay here, we'll be all right. We'll take it easy. (laughs) We'll take it easy. Famous last words. So I think me and someone else went back to the the hotel, and um, the enemy journalist was back at the hotel. And he, in the review, he, he mentioned this. I had the uh, I had the Dubliners on or something, you know, getting in the mood. <laughs> I was blasting that down the corridor. But anyway, the five, four or five of the band plus our t-shirt seller had stayed in the rugby club in the not the rugby club. What's it called? It would, anyway, the social GAA club. So they'd stayed there. Anyway, we got back for like seven o'clock or whatever. You couldn't even fucking revive them. They were just totally gone. And everyone in the bar had our T-shirts on. And I said to Mick, me mate, Mick Potter, who'd been at the end, who I told you about before, I said, Mick, where have you put the money for the T-shirts? And he went, ah, fuck that, I'd give them all away. <laughs> and he'd give all the T-shirts away. He'd give everyone in the bar, all the bar staff at the morning. It was like, it was like a cult. I said, what do you mean you give them away? So that I couldn't be asked selling. You're the farm, aren't you? It's like, you want to be like the clash, give them away. Yeah, so anyway, we tried to sober the band up. We fucking couldn't do it. You know, they didn't know what to do. Keith Mullen was out of control. He was the guitarist. He was like, uh, you know, he just, you know, Steve couldn't walk. Carl couldn't walk. He'd had, he had about eight or nine pints. And he was just, it was only me and the drummer. Who, who had any uh, any semblance of normality about us and that? So anyway, we went backstage, tried to sober them up, pointless, you know. And then the enemy journalist uh, said, uh, "I saw the farm staggering towards the stage." <laughs> After, I mean, he was right. That's what was happening. Um, anyway, I got up on stage and thought, "I've got to rescue this." So we started singing Molly Malone, uh, and as all the crowd singing it, so I thought, "We're on to a winner here." Uh, but we had obviously we had the samplers and we had the drummer. So basically, we played a gig with 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 the samplers and the drummer and my vocals and nothing else much happening. And everyone after the that's the greatest gig I've ever seen. <laughs> you, the greatest I've ever heard the farm. <laughs> and it was just unbelievable, just laughing at it, often. And uh, then the Mondays were about to go on, but Keith was still off his cake, and he's trying to force an ecstasy tablet down Bess's throat, and Bess was going, oh, no, no, I've already had one. And Keith was going, oh, come on, you take 10 a night, don't you? And he's trying, and like, uh, Keith had thrown a monitor off the stage into one of the security, 
And it, it, it had nip one of the security, but it, he had to move away in there. And then all the security come round after the gig, and uh, it was all like, oh yeah, there's something to do with Sinn Fein or something. <laughs> it was all that going on. <laughs> and then there was a big mob of scousers outside our dressing room, and it was like a Mexican standoff. It was about a hundred lads who'd come over for the gig, you know, and it all got sorted out. And but it was like a, it was it was absolute chaos. It was absolute riot. And the next day, everyone's going, that's the best gig I've ever seen. And they, if they only didn't own the truth. Well, maybe that's what we should do more often, get get the, the rhythm section completely plastered, you know. Brilliant. But the cover the cover of the, the Stepping Stone with the, with the sheep um, in the flails and that, that was that was, that was used having a, having a dig at the Happy Mondays, wasn't yeah. it? No, not at the Happy Mondays. It was having a dig at like the NME and people who thought that that was an image. That yeah, was a good yeah, image, like yeah. flares, and because we were saying it's not like that really, because we were into all like no Alavar Ansi t-shirts, you know, uh, Duffer St George, Paul Smith. It was more of a mod look we were after, but we got we got sort of like pigeonholed with the Inspiro carpets look, you know, and it was really yeah. a, a piss take on. That's not what everyone looks like. Stop trying to pigeonhole it, you know. That covers popped up. I think every time yeah, we play, yeah, we yeah. play Aberdeen. Because you know they're known as the sheep shaggers, and that's that's been used. Obviously, they've taken some of the farm stuff off it, but that image has been used so much at the football, and it, it's it's a brilliant image. Yeah, it's a brilliant image, and it's a lot of clothes shops all around the country started putting it in the window because they knew exactly what we were saying. The the fashion mags and the enemy and the music press have got this all wrong. Yeah, people aren't wearing massive flares. You know, maybe a few in Manchester are, and a few, but. In other cities, but it was a very, very niche market that you know most people didn't dress like that. You know, yeah. Now listen, Big Virgil, you know he goes down to you, you get Klopp, you get Big Virgil, and uh, you know league Champions League, and I suppose this season hasn't worked out as well as you would expect it with Big Virgil missing. Now I envy Liverpool, you know, getting to Champions League finals, and as a yeah. fan, I don't envy the club, but as a fan, because you know I'd love to, I'd love to see my club there. But I won. I won a trip to the Champions League final, and it was Liverpool Tottenham in yeah. Madrid. Oh. And uh, I was getting offered silly money for the tickets from people. But it was in, at the end of the day, I ended up giving the tickets to a guy called Rory Lee. Himself in Santa Mendova. Met this guy. He has a bar in Spain, but he travels to see Liverpool everywhere, and he no tickets. So he ended up giving them the tickets, and we watched it in, in a restaurant. But we had a good day now in the city. Yeah. But, and the reason why I gave it to him, right? Because we went over to see Sally play Valencia. He owns a pub in Alicante called Paddy's Point. And he got tickets for nothing off Heineken. And he, he ran a bus down the game, but he gave them free to Celtic fans. But they had to be a genuine Celtic fan. Yeah. He wasn't just giving them to people who just happened to be on holidays. So so I said, look, Rory, I says, I was in Seville. I know what it's like to be outside. outside. I was lucky enough to be inside the stadium, but some of my mates were outside. Yeah, yeah. I said, so look, you go in and... You know, we were watching the pub because it, it didn't mean anything to us. And then we were in the restaurant that night and there was, you know, both sets of fans there. And when they hear the story that you've given the tickets, they oh, why would I give you this much? And would I give you that much? And I always say, the, the, the tickets are always filtered to the right fans, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, but like, it, it, it's gone to the stage now where you're getting there every couple of years now. Yeah. I mean, that um, the the number of Liverpool fans at that final was unbelievable, wasn't it? I mean, there's only probably Celtic could have ma- or maybe Rangers could have matched Liverpool fans at that. I mean Tottenham, it was three to one, wasn't it? Four to one. 
it was it, it was an amazing day the heat and like the way they had the, the, the fan zone set up and that but like I was trying to get outside and find bars where fans were and, and all that and yeah, just just yeah. just in, just to soak up the atmosphere and enjoy the day but coming closer to the kickoff see people without tickets they're genuine fans yeah, yeah. Like, you know, yeah. they wouldn't even let them into the bars to watch the game like you know yeah, they were saying yeah. not showing the game not showing the game because they, they took their money in and it was a case yeah. of look go and watch it somewhere else which, yeah, was, a, yeah. which was a bit of a but um, yeah. you look there right You've obviously travelled. You've obviously travelled everywhere with Liverpool. You've been, yeah. you've been, you've been around the block. Now, is it true that you stopped going to see Liverpool when Graham Sooners, who was then Liverpool manager, it's gave an true. interview to the Sun? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I never went, and there was a few of us never went, but I wouldn't say it was a mass boycott, you know, but a few hundred maybe. But um, a lot of lads who are like saying, "Oh no, the club's bigger," you know, and. I stopped going because I just couldn't, you know, I wanted to make a protest, you know, I wanted to make a protest, you know, and uh, I thought that was the best way of doing it. So I used to go up to the ground every day, every match, home match, but just not go in, you know. So we're still, I'm still getting everything, you know, like the drink before and after, but I wasn't going in the match. Um, didn't make a big deal about it. I just got it, you know, soon as I think was, you know, he was, he was so arrogant, wasn't he, that, you know, he, when he was, you know, when he was a uh, Rangers manager, it wasn't because he was thinking of, uh, I'm going to break the sectarian barriers about Mojons. It was because I'll do what I like. That's what it was based on, wasn't it? It wasn't any on any political ideal. He, it was just as soon as that was the impression, I do what I want. And that's what he. That's why he did it. So when I knew when he came to Liverpool, a similar type of thing had happened, and it did with the son. Now he claims that he didn't realise the strength of feeling, and that. and I'm willing to accept his apology. He's apologised, and he, I think he feels as if he's he's not well liked at Anfield. I think he is well liked. Um, I mean, a lot of us didn't like it when he went to, you know, manage Rangers, but a lot of Liverpool fans didn't like it when. Gerard went to manage them, you know, but they'll they'll forgive him eventually. I think, you know, it's just a matter of uh, it just depends on what your ideals are in life, isn't it? You know. Yeah, and like I suppose, like to hear soon as given an interview with the son, you know, as you say, he thought he could do what he, he likes, but that was. I mean, that's just a, that's just you know a step too far because it's yeah. so like, and it was the on the, so raw. It was on the anniversary as well, you know, and like I think. It was one of the real catalysts for the Don't Buy the Sun campaign, you know, the fact that Sooners. And I was having arguments with people, good Liverpoolians all the time, going, hey, you know, you've got to get behind the manager, you know, he's made a mistake and all that, you know. But I just think at the time, I think he probably wasn't thinking straight. He'd had the heart operation, hadn't he? And, you know, he, he's, you know, he's just decided to, uh, to do it, you know. But I think he knew the seriousness of it, you know. Surely he did, you know. I mean, the son came to the farm to use all together now uh, and offered us, like, you know, lots of money, lots of winning money, you know. Uh, and we decided, we found, we we were told it was News International. So our publisher got in touch and said, oh, News International, I want to use the song. I said, News International, which branch of News International? And they said, oh, we'll find out, we'll find out, but... It's a lot of money, you know, and I think you should go for it. And anyway, we found out uh, after doing a bit of an investigation, it was for the Sun advert on the television. Our lives wouldn't have been worth living. So we got it pulled 
And a group called Hurricane Number One did it. And it's a black and white video of someone reading the sun. So it was very reminiscent of uh, of altogether now video. But just imagine if that had got through because we hadn't challenged our publishing company, you know. And that was only that was probably two or three years after. So everyone knew the strength of feeling. So I think I think Sooners was being fairly disingenuous there when he said he didn't know the strength of feeling. But I think his mind might have been gone. You know, he'd had an operation. He thought he was going to die. You know, it's all these sorts of things. Maybe he wasn't thinking straight. You know. Yeah, and like you, you were you were there in Hillsborough, um, and obviously after the game, Selig Selig played us in the friendly. So you know, there's a there's connection between the two cities there as well. But um, what was it like? Not not so much. You know, the day, you know, straight after. But you know, as time went by. Did the city and the people, did they ever get over it? And then, because the Justice for 96 campaign took so long yeah, to, yeah. to get justice. I, don't, I think after, we always used to say in the weeks after it, this is what it must have been like in the war, when after people are being bombed, you know, this is what it must have felt like. Because people were just wanting to get to places to gather and discuss things and all that. And then I think going to um, the Celtic game, that was the first time that, you know, we felt normal, not normal, but it felt like there was a bit of hope there, you know, and that, the emotion that day, and it was non-segregated, and we all went uh, up on a coach, and it was a fantastic day, and um, I think people remember that, you know, re- remember that, uh, very fond memories of it, and I think in, it's in the DNA of Liverpoolians that what Celtic fans did to, for Liverpool that day. And I, I went up on a coach with some people who would be regarded as they would have wore Rangers scarves in the 70s and 80s when it was fashionable, when people used to sing Celtic and Rangers at the match and then Liverpool after it. Uh, and even they, you know, p- people of, the, of an orange persuasion were taken aback by it. You know, they were going, this is unbelievable, you know. And I think it did a lot to, um, to dissipate, you know, any, uh, any remnants of sectarianism in the city, you know. Rangers had tried to come up in the 80s to Liverpool and tried to have a, like, a sort of, they got it with Chelsea, but they tried it with Liverpool because uh, there must be an Orange Lodge connections or whatever. But they, they got short shrift, you know, and I think one time a coach told them got battered in town, you know, and, and the ones who were doing it were Catholic descent and Protestant descent, going, don't be bringing that to us, fuck off, you know, we don't want that, you know. That day... I think, uh, cemented that relationship between the city of Glasgow and Liverpool. It certainly did. And I don't think we've ever got over it. I couldn't talk about Hillsborough for 10 years. I couldn't talk about it. I just went numb and started crying, you know. And um, I think even now I'm getting upset talking about it because it's such a traumatic experience, you know. But the, the campaign that went on was a grassroots campaign and it was a lot of it was based around Don't Buy the Sun and a lot of it was kept going by the grassroots around Don't Buy the Sun, you know. Uh, and I think it was an act of solidarity. And I think that solidarity from the people of Glasgow and the people from a lot, a lot of other places as well, but particularly from Glasgow, uh, will live with Liverpool fans forever. It will, you know. It, I remember us all being up in a pub in Glasgow and everyone buying his drinks and, you know, and we're all st- still, you know, on the verge of crying all the time, you know. And it, it was just one of those human things which you think, this is unique. This is unique. And I, th- I think it was like the way you talk about Three Kings, 
the mining community that Jock Steen, Shankly, Busby all came from a similar background from a, a mining working class community. I think football can do that. Football can divide people, of course it can, but it can also unite people. And I think, you know, hopefully, if anything, you know, writing all together now has become that type of anthem which can unite people, you know. Unbelievable day. And then a few years later, Ian Rush's testimonial. I played for the Celtic in the in the match before the before the testimonial, like a celebrity match. And I was playing for Celtic. I wasn't actually going to play. We were just asked to do all together now at half time. And uh, we turned up and Sammy Lee it was. Said, you're going to have a game out there? I said, no, nah, I haven't brought my boots. He said, yeah, there's some boots there. Neil Ruddock's boots. Neil Ruddock. I've still got them in the garage. Size eight. I'm nine and a half in fluffy boots. Size eight for the big man that Neil Ruddock is. Yeah. So I ended up playing. And here's me. Here's the Celtic jersey I got on the night. And I played next to Jimmy Johnston. And what a player he was. What a player he was. Even then, 1994 it was. But would he pass the fucking ball? <laughs> Every time I was in space inside him, Jimmy, 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 oh, fucking hell, Jimmy. <laughs> I actually did get the ball a couple of times uh, and didn't particularly disgrace myself, but I said to Alan Hansen, who's playing for the Liverpool celebrity, Ian Rush's team, this was before the main match between Liverpool and Celtic, and I said to Alan Hansen, I said, Alan, I'm a Liverpool fan. He said, I'm, I got drafted into the Celtics well, to get, keep the numbers up. He said, uh, if I get the ball, just let me ghost past you. You know, he went, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, I, 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 it's, it's a subject that's, back, Hills was a very, it's, it's a touchy thing for someone from the yeah. outside to ask. Because I, I remember, um, I was driving, I'd, I'd never met Ray Houghton before, but I was doing a gig with him down the country and he flew into Dublin Airport. I picked him up and we were driving down the road, and we were talking, he's, he's from Glasgow, we were talking Celtic, we were talking Liverpool, we were talking Republic of Ireland, and I'm trying to get the gig together that we're going to talk about, because there's going to be a Q&A after that, you know? And I didn't bring up Hills, but I wanted to, because yeah. I said, this might come up, you know, this might come up at the, at the Q&A, and I, but I didn't bring it up, so, so thanks very much for sharing that. Myself and the yeah. listeners. Because, yeah, um, it, is, it is hard to talk about it because, as I say, I didn't talk about it for 10 years. I was, I was in denial, maybe, or I was putting it to the back of my mind, but if I ever tried to talk about it, I'd start crying, you see. And me uh, uncle's just lost his, um, his wife, and that's my auntie, my sister's, uh, uh, sorry, me, me mum's sister, and he can't stop crying either. And he's in his, his early 90s and all that, but... You know, people saying, oh, why is he crying all the time? But if I talk about Elizabeth, I start crying, you know, so you can understand that grief. It's like, it's something triggers. It's something's triggered in you. And it, it's because of the injustice of it, I think. But the thing is that we did with uh, the Justice Tonight tour with Mick Jones and all that. And we went around the country and we went to the ABC in Glasgow. It was a fantastic night. We had Las Vegas on. Everywhere we went, Mick Jones, he was like the Pied Piper, Mick Jones. Can't, you know, and... Uh, any city we went to, people would be trying to get on the bill, you know. And we got Las Vegas on, and ABC thought it had a fire, didn't it? Uh, yeah. A few years ago, but um, it was a brilliant gig, you know. And it, it really, it really reinforced that solidarity. And and I think human beings in general are good people, you know. It's only the the minority that gives a bad name. <laughs> 
I think yeah. generally, I think genuinely and generally, you know, people will rally to a cause and will do something if they think it's the right thing. And it was unbelievable. Jerry Conlon was there that night uh, and the ABC, you know, and every time you met Jerry, he'd, he'd just burst into tears. If you've mentioned anything about anything. <laughs> and he was a brilliant character, you know, and uh, he was a Man United fan. And he always used to do... Uh, we all have our problems. Yeah, and I said, I'll send you the book on... Uh, I'd done a book on Liverpool and I said, I'll send you this book. And he went, yeah, yeah, send it me. So I did send it to him before he passed away, you know. And I think Paddy Hill was there that night as well. But it was a brilliant night, you know, and it was a, a night of of solidarity, really, and, and humanity. And did you, that, that, you've done, did you just play with the Stone Roses in Manchester for that? Yeah, they turned up, John Squire and Ian Brown, you know, turned up and did uh, Elizabeth, my dear, and Bank Robber. Uh, and that was unannounced. That was unannounced and... It was before the Heaton Park gigs, so uh, it caused... And, and we went to Leon, played with them in Leon, and they had a cancer heart turned up and got on stage and did, should I stay or should I go? And some cynic behind stage, oh, he said, he's only done that because Mick Jones is, uh, is producing his, wife, his, his partner at the time. I don't know if she's still with him. Like, but, so I thought, I've got to ask him. So I didn't want to be seen photographed with Eric Cantona, but I wanted to ask him the question. <laughs> You know, so I said to him, uh, Eric, you know, this is for Hillsby, you know. And he went, I know all about Hillsby. He said, it's a great injustice. And he took, he lectured me on Hillsby. So I thought, he means it, he means it. And he's done it for the right things. And a few years later, Andy Mitten, a Man United fan, who does the United be fine. We stand, yeah. We stand, he's a good lad, Andy. And uh, he said, he tipped me off, said, watch Football Rebels. And Cantonar introduces them all. And it's all about Socrates and Brazil and, mm. and, uh, different players, Drogba, you know, and, and what they've used the fame to try and change the political system in their countries. And it's, you can get it, some of it, on Al Jazeera, on um, on YouTube, on Vimeo, and you know, whatever. But if you put football rebels in Cantona, you'll see them. It never got shown over here properly, but they're absolutely brilliant documentaries about how Socrates changed the Corinthians in Brazil to being like this bastion of, of, uh, of radicalism, really, you know fighting the military junta and using his fame as a footballer. The military junta couldn't arrest him or not because he was Socrates. He was a World Cup star, you know. Brilliant stuff. The names that have come up in this conversation are The Clash, John Peel, <laughs> Paul Heaton, yeah. Eric Cantona. You've had an amazing life, but, you know, you, you've you've gone out and, you know, through fanzines and... Okay, now don't be, you know, be killing music. me off already. But, but your music and all that, you've you've done... I would never do that, Peter. You've done so much, but I, I have an imaginary time machine, and I know you've, you've listened to the Johnny podcast and that, so yeah, an imaginary yeah. time machine. So if I can take you back to a game, a gig, or a moment in life, you know, where does that time machine take you? A game, a gig, uh, let's see. Uh, it would have to be Liverpool versus Saint-Étienne uh, when we beat them in the quarter final of the European Cup and went on to win the European Cup. Uh, it was famous because it was a comeback, basically. And we had to score in the last few minutes and David Fairclough got that breakaway and slotted it and the crowd just went mad. And and as I remember I was sitting on a bar on the cop that, that day and the whole ground was bouncing and even... Now, it's not unusual. Celtic Park have been doing that for many, many years. And Liverpool do it now where the whole ground sings. But it didn't happen at Anfield in those days. It was just a cop sang, and all the stands would be sitting on the hands, you know. But on that night, all the 
Camden Road and the main stand were clapping along with the We Shall Not Be Moved. And it, it was an atmosphere which is, uh, I've never known it before at, uh, at Anfield. Barcelona come near to it a couple of years ago when we beat them 4 0, and also Chelsea 2005. But I think for sheer bounceability, the cop were all bouncing. Uh, it wasn't a seated stadium. So it was, it's probably that. The, the, and then the close second would be when Shankly won the league by drawing against Leicester at Anfield, 72 73 season. Uh, and he did his lap of honour around the pitch, and it took him about an hour to get around the pitch because he was just taking clothes everywhere. And I've never known, I mean, it's an experience to Jockstein Celtic thing, it's probably very similar, but I've never known, because it was our team, the second great Shankly team, I've never known a communion between fans and a manager like that. You just thought, this is, people sang, people stayed in the ground for half an hour, an hour after the game, singing Shankly's name to Amazing Grace, Shankly. And it was just incredible stuff, you know. They're two years. <laughs> That's amazing. We've only touched on your story and like there's so much more and you could do a music documentary on you, you could do a football one, you could do a fans Do a one. musical there's so much a musical, yeah. Four leaf clover. Where are we now? You know, hopefully we're going to come out of this. Hopefully this vaccine is a game changer. We get back to the yeah, football. yeah. But where's where's Peter Hooten? You know, where's the farm? Uh, just, I mean, it's 30th anniversary this week in the next couple of weeks for Spartacus. Wow. So there'll be a bit of promotion on that. Maybe hopefully we get some gigs this year. Most of our gigs in the summer now. You know, we don't know whether they're going to happen or not. You know, we're not sure. There's going to be an announcement in the next few weeks. Hopefully, some of them will later on if they're August, September. But you know, hopefully, we get able to get playing live again, and hopefully, uh, do um, do some gigs in Scotland. I mean, we always love playing in Scotland. Last time we played Scotland, we got Sandy Devers to do the bagpipes, and he did uh, an introduction tour together now on the bagpipes, and it was a famous First World War introduction that used to be played by the Pipers before they went over the top, you know, it was like, yeah. there. but it was, that's, you know, you got to remember that Altogether Now is an internationalist song. It's not a jingoistic, imperialist song. It's about the British and Germans coming together. And there were Scottish regiments involved in that as well. Uh, and it's about, uh, you know, an act of humanity in a futile imperialist war, you know, and I think you can't emphasise that enough, you know. Especially what goes on nowadays with poppy fascism and, and what's happened to McLean and all that, you know, it's just absolutely ridiculous. You know, that you know, uh, if people want to wear a poppy, good luck to them, let them wear it, you know, for whatever reason. But for me, it was General Haig's wife's idea to bring the poppy into the from Canada as a commemoration and as a fundraiser for the people who, who've been made by his leadership. I think it's if you look at what the poppy represents. You know, I'm not somebody, I'm not going to criticise someone if they wear it, but I'm not going to, you know, I've never been interested in wearing one myself because I've read my history books and I know where the origins from it comes. And Haig, you sent people over the top at the Somme, Passchendaele, and the second battle, uh, second or third battle of Ypres. He was the person, he was the butcher of the Somme. And he had no regard whatsoever for the Pals Brigades, absolutely none. He thought they were scum, they were working class scum. And if you read up on the history of what he th- thought about that, and for him, a few years later, say, oh, let's get a poppy appeal to get, 
to help the people who've been maimed because the government weren't helping them. You know, it's just the hypocrisy of it all. Just, it really upsets me, you know, and I hate the way everyone's been forced to wear them. Otherwise, there's now cry on the telly because it was never like that when I was growing up. It's never like that at all, you know. But you get people jump onto this bandwagon of, uh, you know, and I wouldn't put it on Twitter because I don't want to fucking big Twitter arguments over something which is, you know, let other people do that. But, you know, if someone doesn't want to wear a poppy, fuck it, so what? Why does it affect your life? You know, it's absolute nonsense, you know, absolute nonsense. And it's, there's a great term now, isn't it? Flag shaggers, <laughs> which I think's great, you know. But, I mean, I've never been into nationalism. Uh, there's a couple of times I've regretted it, really. I, my wife's mum and dad are Irish, you know, and her name's Duffy, her, her maiden name. And I used to go to the Irish Centre in Liverpool, you know. And at, it was at the time of the 80s in Liverpool, and we all thought we were internationalists, you know, Marxists or whatever, you know. And uh, anyway, at the end of the night, the Irish uh, soldier, soldier song would come on, and uh, Geraldine's dad said to me, come on, get up. And I said, I don't get up for national anthems. And he said, I get I said, I'll get up for the internationality. And he was really upset by it, you know, and I thought maybe I should have got up, you know, but it was one of those things. And I still think about it now, even though I married uh, his daughter, you know, well, you know, because he you know, I got on great with him and that, but I think it was a bit of dis- bit of disrespect, maybe should because I was in that environment of that time, I should have just got up, you know. But I was determined I was going. I don't get up for any nationalist uh, cause, you know. <laughs> we're an international man. You know, it was a bit of, uh, I don't know, we thought we were, uh, I mean, there was another lad with me, he's never told you, and he wouldn't get up either because we were like both politicos. And we're saying we'd only get up to the internationality, but I think it, looking back on it, it was pathetic. It, we should have got up, you know, but, but you know, if someone, I wouldn't get up for uh, the national anthem of any country, really. But I love the Italian one. I love the Brazilian one. And uh, Blackie from Half Man Half Biscuit, we always like compare what's your favourite national anthem. And I, and I love, yeah, even like the uh, the Russian one and the Stars and Stripes are quite like, you know, as tunes. But I think, God save the Queen, it's an absolute dirge, isn't it? It's absolute dirge, you know. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to listen to. National anthem should be all together now, you know. It should be, yeah. Definitely. No, it should be, if anything, it should be Jerusalem. And Billy Bragg convinced me that that's what it should be because it's a, it's about everyone coming together, you know. And I always, usually always reminds me of Borstal's. Not that I ever went to one because I didn't. I was a youth worker, I remember. I was going to them, visiting people who were inside them, <laughs> trying to get them out. But there's also long, Loneliness of a Long Distance Drawn, a classic film. And there was, Jerusalem was in that when they're all assembly. And it was always used in assembly as a, it's scum, I think it's even used. I can't remember now, but well, it's all about penal institutions and Jerusalem. So it always reminds me of that. So puts me off a little bit, but you know, because it's very. But Billy Bragg reckons it's it should be the one. You know, I've seen some conversations over the years. You know, Billy Bragg, yeah. Paul Heaton. There's a lot of politics spoken. I would imagine, Peter. It's been. An absolute pleasure. I can't thank you enough for coming on to the show. Um, we See, spoke for hours. Yeah, and that's only that's only half of it. Yeah, I know. We're <laughs> going to run a serious. <laughs> Listen, thanks a million. Yeah, and, uh, no, I've enjoyed it. Uh, uh, ho- hopefully, hopefully, we play Liverpool in the Champions League sometime because yeah, that'd be brilliant. We yeah. would just love to be back at the big time, you know. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I'd love Celtic to be back, and I think you know it's uh, 
you know, I'd I'd like to, you know, might be a popular opinion, but I'd like Celtic and Rangers to be in the Premier League, really. You know, I think it's inevitable something like that would happen, but that would really spice it up a bit, if you know what I mean. It's pretty dull going to the same places all the time, and at least Celtic and Rangers would bring lots, lots of, uh, lots of uh, joy and happiness to certain pub oh, owners. Oh, oh, definitely. I'd say, <laughs> I'd say Manchester can't wait for Rangers to come again. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, but that was a that was a final one, or some phony final one. But yeah, that was like, but I mean, that was obvious that was going to happen. Anyone could have told them that that was going to happen, couldn't they? You know, it was like, you know, it's just so obvious that was. That's the one thing they always said in Liverpool. The people always said to me, "How come if Rangers are the Unionists, every time Celtic come, everyone gets on great with them? They don't ever put the windows in of any of the pubs." When Rangers come, they smash all the pubs up. What's that all about? <laughs> well, it's it's not really for me to say. I'm an Irish man, but I would say yeah. it's something to do with um, the the kind of the rural Britannia classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I still believe that that is, you know, if that's taught to you. It, yeah, but there's a lot. Of, I know there must be a lot of Rangers fans who are working class. You know, who lean towards you know uh, left wing politics as well. There's got to be, hasn't it? There's got to be. Yeah, and and. I wouldn't know them, but that's the only thing. Uh, I know. I know there's a Rangers group in, involved in the uh, Independence for Scotland, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's the that's all. That's the only time I would have uh, come across any of them that would be uh, political, I suppose. In yeah, in in, in a non right wing sense. Yeah, yeah, you know. I haven't told you my story about the uh, the nun grassing me up to me mum, have I? Well, the better thing before you go. But yeah, this was this could this be a treat. This, hard, this was this was when I thought. The Catholic Church isn't for me. Like, I went in to do my practice confession. So I was like, well, six and a half, seven, I don't know, you know, my practice confession. So you're supposed to go in and practice. And he said, say something like, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I've, uh, I've told three tolls and told lies and whatever. So I went in and said, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been three weeks since my last confession. I did, I've told tales, I've told lies, and I tried to burn the school down. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this is in confidence, right? And uh, the the nun, it was a nun because it wasn't a priest because it was a, a it was a practice. You know what I mean? The nun said, uh, "What did you say?" I said, "Yeah, Father Mean told us we could uh, if we did these pictures, uh, we did the grass on the pictures and dug it all up and so so it's, we could play football on it. But he's never let us play football, so I was going to burn his part of his school down. You just, it was, I was joking." You know, it was like, anyway, the nun must have recognised my voice. Went to me mum as the dinner lady and said, it's terrible what your Peter's just told me. I thought it was supposed to be in confidence. That's what confessions are all about. <laughs> <laughs> so me, me mum, God bless her, uh, just laughed about it and said, oh, no, he was told to make it up. It's just this creative thing. You know, it was like... He's told to make something up. I don't think he could make that up. Maybe it was a weird kid. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I certainly wouldn't have... I, I would have went to confession when I was younger, but I certainly wouldn't have told him anything I'd done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hadn't got the trust. Yeah. Peter, thank you so much. Okay. No, it's been a pleasure, and uh, good luck in the future, and hopefully we get back to gigging and we get back to playing, and uh, we get back to Ireland and Glasgow. We look forward to it. Magic stuff, Peter. Thankfully, I have only had to experience getting a few bruises on my Celtic away days over the years. But the scars of Hillsborough will remain with Peter and the Liverpool fans forever. 
Glad that Celtic and the Celtic support showed solidarity at the time and that continued through the whole justice campaign. Once again, Peter, thank you very much for opening up your football and musical soul on this, the Celtic soul. Modern 90 Minutes, issue 113, print edition is now sold out. Thank you, folks, I'm feeling the love. But you can still download the digital edition. And issue 114 is now with Richie, who will be putting his magical graphic design touches to it. Thanks to all the contributors for quality articles and to former Celtic player Didi Agat for chatting to us and also world toy boxing champion Daniel McGowan who gave us an interview. The print edition of this issue will go on pre-sale over the weekend and as I said, the digital edition of 113 is still available and 114 will be on sale midweek with the print copy arriving through your letterbox a few days later. With no match day sales, there would be no print edition without you fans buying the fanzine. So thanks very much for your continued support and I suppose continuing supporting old school print. As always, thank you very much to Ronan McQuillan for producing the show. But as a big music man, I think he really enjoyed the last two episodes or three episodes if I include Charlie Feelys. So folks, if you like what we're doing and you would like to support us, you can do so by visiting CelticFanzine.com where you can become a member, subscribe, buy or donate for the price of a pint. Don't forget to visit our website for articles and news and you can also sign up for our newsletter. Please download our app, it's free, and you'll then have access to all the podcasts, articles, daily news, video content and info on upcoming events. The fanzine, and of course you can visit our online shop at the touch of a button on your phone or tablet. All episodes of the podcast are now available on all platforms, so hit that subscribe button or follow button and you'll never miss an episode and you can always leave a 5 star review. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. And on the Instagram account, you can just bang into a story if you want to go straight into Spotify and listen to the podcast. And all those details will be in the podcast description. And we've also released uh, the first of our pocket-sized podcast, which is Celtic Soul Shots. Just just snippets of interviews and conversations with guests over the last couple of months that we've chatted. So don't forget to check out our social media. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel, Celtic Fanzine TV. I said last week, because of lockdown, we were waiting to do some stuff on the podcast. We have been out and about, but trying to create some original content, but it's not easy in the little zone we're walking. But when it's ready to rock and roll, we'll get it out. So give us a follow and that'll pop straight into your inbox or whatever when, when it's ready to go. And folks, once again, if your business is Celtic-minded and like what we're doing, or your Celtic supporters club like the podcast and would like to become a sponsor, please email us at info at You can also contact us through the website or message us on all those social media platforms. If you enjoyed the conversation with today's guest, Peter Hooten, I think you'll like what I'm going to recommend just to listen to over the weekend. Back in episode 43, we had Linda Carroll from the striking Debenham Walkers chatting to us, along with Napoli fan Mimo Rossi, who spoke about the impact Maradona had on his city. Former Celtic player Rudy Vata chatted to us back in episode 33 about his journey from defecting from communist Albania in France when he was on international duty with the Albanian team before he got his move to Celtic where he settled and Glasgow became his home. And another former Celtic player, Ramon Vega, opened up his Celtic soul to us in episode 18 and he spoke about his family's journey from freeing Franco's fascism in Spain to Switzerland where he set up a new home and built a new life. And that life, of course, would lead him to a life in professional football and on to Celtic where he had a short but very successful period. Folks, we've no game this week. 
as we wait for the arrivals of the Newco, the Rangers or Shevco next week, whatever you want to call them, the Celtic Park. And we are going to have to have a week of listening to all that Guard of Honour bullshit. Each episode, we lend our support to musicians, performers and songwriters because they've been hit the hardest by the lockdown restrictions. No gigs and no venues. So if you're a musician or a, a band and you want us to play out of one of the podcasts with your material and give you a plug and maybe a link to buy your CD or whatever, please do so. Contact us through the usual info at CelticFansin.com or on social media. So folks, thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us. Stay safe. Keep the faith. And today we'll play out with another classic from the farm, Groovy Train. And once again, apologies to our listeners in Cuba, Iran, Syria and the North Korean number one Celtic Supporters Club.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.